You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Tech Tank podcast. I am co-host Nicole Turner-Lee, and I'm glad that you can join us for this very informative and critical conversation. Today, we're talking about the state of children's privacy and with all the recent media and state-led announcements around social media, the handling of children's data, the need for more parental controls, and pending congressional dialogue and proposal from last year, the time might be now. Or at least we think so. But policymakers in the public, they appear to have the same apprehensions, maybe about the exposure of young people to harmful content on social media and other online platforms, the issues associated with that. We've talked about this over the years, cyberbullying, things like that. But the issue at hand is how do we bring the voices of young people in and particularly manage children's privacy in a way that offers some leeway if not all, for their expression of their own rights, if that even matters to anyone. You know, public policy gets so wrapped up that we forget about the people we're actually trying to protect. So I'm actually excited about the timing of this conversation, because if you're watching the news and you're watching television, there's just a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of state bills that are actually being presented too that perhaps we'll get to as well. On this week's episode, of the Tech Tank podcast, I'm joined by Jennifer Huddleston, a technology policy research fellow at the Cato Institute, and Christopher Wood, founder and CEO of the nonprofit LGBT Tech. We're going to delve into the issues. We're going to surround some uh, attempts at explaining this legislation and regulation moments, and even how some industries are jumping into the debate around children's online data privacy. Thanks for joining me, Chris and Jennifer. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So I want to jump right in, okay? Jennifer, I'll start with you. You know, coming from the think tank world as peers, you know, we're always writing and discussing this to provide some objective stance. Let's start with the explainer on why this issue has become an increasing concern among policymakers and perhaps parents more so. And let's talk through some of the policies being proposed right now. I mean, last year, there was a Children's Online Privacy Protection Rule 2.0, COPPA, which started out in the 90s, right? And basically uh, experienced a facelift under uh, some new bipartisan legislation. And then there's the Kids Online Safety Act, COSA. COPPA, COSA, COPPA, COSA. Tell us more about what the landscape is, Jennifer, and then what these two things are and how they're related to this landscape. Thanks, Nicole. And as you mentioned, this is something that is coming up with parents and with policymakers, and it's coming up across the political spectrum. But as I'm sure we'll dive into a little bit deeper, some of those concerns from the left and the right are are very different and, and very incongruous at times. I'm a millennial, and so I'm kind of the product of that first internet generation. And many millennials now are becoming parents and seeing how technology has evolved and therefore experiencing this kind of phenomena from the other side at this time. 
parents and policymakers often have the best of intentions. They want to help keep the next generation safe. They want to keep them from experiencing negative events, whether it's online or in person. But those at the end of the day are going to be individual choices. Unfortunately, what we've started to see are some proposals, like you mentioned, the Kids Online Safety Act or COSA, and some changes to COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, that are seeking to impose a one-size-fits-all approach onto what is really a real individual family situation. So with COPPA 2.0, one of the things we see is calls to raise the age from 13 to 16 uh, for a lot of internet products. However, there are a lot of times where young people are really having positive uses of those products at a younger age and that individual parents can still decide what age they want to allow their child to, to get a device or to get on social media based on that own child's developmental standards. There are some critical things that can happen in that kind of middle school era where the internet can be a good tool. And just like there can be negative experiences, there can be incredible positive experiences. With COSA, it's a little bit more complicated, and there's a lot of concerns about the requirements that this bill would have when it comes to things like verifying how old someone is or allowing people to access certain information. And the reason this is of particular concern is not only, as you mentioned, the impact this might have on the young people who the bill is designed to impact, but the impact this might have on all internet users. What does a bill like this mean for something like anonymous speech that can be incredibly important? What does this mean for the privacy of the additional data that may have to be collected in order to show whether or not a user needs to be put in this age-appropriate um, area. And so I think that when we're talking about youth online safety, while we often focus on what does this mean for teenagers and their rights, we also have to focus on what does this mean for those of us over the age of 18 because, or over the age of 16? Because in many cases, the only way to ensure that someone is not under the age of 16 or 18 is going to be to apply these requirements to every user to verify that they are in fact over those ages. Thanks, Jennifer, for that. And I, I think that that's a nice explainer for people to understand. Like, we've always had COPPA that was enacted in 1998. And it was really the baseline for, you know, securing some type of parental guidance and children's safety boundaries when it came to content. You know, COPPA 2.0, and there's been a version that's actually been regurgitated, right, in 2023 based on some of the stringent, more stringent requirements, is actually trying to bring some more, I think, modern day thinking around children's online privacy protection rules. But, you know, Chris, when I think about what Jennifer laid out in terms of these bills and, you know, how they are somewhat similar, but COSA might go a little further, the Kids Online Safety Act bill... Where are groups like LGBT tech on these draft legislation? And why do you think it's taken what seems like ages to get a handle on not only children's data privacy, but data privacy generally, right, Chris? I mean, we've been doing this for a long time. And now I see that this has actually elevated the conversation, but we still have that overarching uh, problem. So I gave you two questions, Chris, and I want you to answer <laughs> both, right? <laughs> because I know you can. But let's talk a little bit about like where your group stands on these legislative drafts, but also you know, how does this really tie into the broader conversation of not having a federal data privacy standard? We've been really looking at 
these two particular bills uh, and the way that it impacts communities like the LGBTQ community and other marginalized communities um, in regards to uh, in regards to the collection of data, use of data, etc. But I think one of the important things to underscore what Jennifer said is that you know these were created so long ago, um, and of course it's important to update these uh, these laws to make sure that they're fitting in with current technologies. But it's also important to understand that that also comes with a lot of research that needs to be reviewed, thought about, because when these bills were created, there was a very limited amount of research around marginalized communities, especially communities like the LGBTQ community. In fact, you didn't see a lot of representation of LGBTQ individuals on public platforms uh, or across TV or other media uh, spaces. And so I think it's I think it's really important to recognize that as we're updating these it's important to think about the research that has been done since then. Also the research that still has not been completed and how understudied some of these areas are and making sure that we're not drawing laws and creating laws that are so strict or so tight that they don't continue to allow these communities to flourish uh, and continue to use digital spaces in a way that has been so helpful for them. I think it's important to think about laws like Section 230 that have really provided a sword and shield for communities like the LGBTQ community. It has provided platforms the ability to make decisions about what content should stay up and what content should be taken down um, and created a, an opportunity for those platforms to create spaces that are inclusive, uh, that allow communities to come together and find each other. Uh, and so I think that's kind of the first part of the, the question that you said uh, and we're asking, but I think it's also important to recognize that, and as you alluded to, we still don't have a handle on data privacy in general. There's still no national privacy law, and we need one um, because data doesn't operate along state borders uh, and even doesn't operate in today's world along country borders. We have decades of federal court cases demonstrating how unconstitutional barriers to online spaces, all the way back to the 2004 Supreme Court Ashcroft versus ACLU decision, ruled on COPPA uh, and the online age checks as unconstitutional. In fact, there was a quote that I, I read from there is that the court found that blocking software installed on home computers by parents would do as good a job without preventing free speech. For similar reasons, the panel found that the act was unconstitutionally overbroad and that is it is applied to too much protected material. What we're finding is that legislators want to have their cake and eat it too. Policymakers that both decry online platforms from collecting too much personal data while wanting these same platforms to be legally required to collect that data to identify and verify. So I think we're seeing, uh, you know, a huge issue here. I think uh, my last point is, I think it's uh, a really interesting analogy from uh, Congresswoman Halunen um, speaking from the AI symposium, I think it was yesterday or today, um, wanted to put somewhere in writing that she compared the push for federal privacy law to that of paid leave. It's not the same, but in Congress, it has the same shape as something basically every other country has figured out, that states are being left to figure it out on their own, and that industry is now left trying to navigate a patchwork of these states' laws. 
Wow, that's so interesting. And, um, you know, I want to dig deeper, Kristen, at some point with some examples of, you know, what's happening when you talk about uh, the LGBTQ community and how, you know, even for young people, how these laws could be a little bit abrasive for them. But Jennifer, I want to come back to you. I mean, you would think something like this would have a little bit more bipartisan consensus, right? We'd want something that protects young people. But both Kristen, you sort of identified you know, that we are essentially taking old laws and trying to make them more modern in a space where the technologies may be different. And I think your earlier point is like, we're still kind of stuck uh, when it comes to convincing, you know, legislators, the public, industry, parents, these opportunities and, um, you know, potential barriers. What do you think is the next policy decision? And, and, and I mean, how do you feel about the states sort of taking this under their realm as they've done with federal privacy data standards and saying, well, we're going to do something, even if you don't, you know? One of the unique issues when it comes to the debate over youth online safety is what do we even mean when we say youth online safety? Because even within the same household, it can be mean very different things. Some parents may be concerned about the amount of time their young person is spending online. Others may be concerned about a particular type of content that goes against their values. Others may be concerned about very specific harms or bullying behavior or who their child may be in in contact with. I bring that up because as you can imagine, All of those are going to have different solutions for an individual family and different trade-offs involved in how much trust a parent has with a child or what opportunities they give a child. What we're seeing is at both a state and a federal level, an attempt to do a one-size-fits-all solution to a problem that hasn't even been defined or established to fully be a problem. Again, so much of this that as Chris alluded to, there's still a lot of debate even over the data that is out there. Um, and it's and there's still a lot of debate, you know, while they're about the kind of anecdotal situations versus the the general trends that may be going on in this issue. We have seen though in several states start to act on this as we have on other tech policy issues, and that raises a lot of concerns. One is much like data privacy, the risk of creating a patchwork and a fragmentation that would really make it difficult for people, for new innovators and for consumers to offer, to to use some of these products. It may mean that you can't communicate with someone in a particular state, or if you're a uh, online platform that you can't provide your service across the country because you're not going to want to undertake that additional compliance for one single state. What I do think is really interesting to point out, though, is so far we've seen four of these state laws be challenged in court. And of the four, the three that have had hearings about preliminary injunctions have all been enjoined on First Amendment grounds. So there does seem to be a recognition of the First Amendment problems underlying many of these state laws. Now, all of these state laws look slightly different. Unsurprisingly, we've seen a lot of different strategies to, to um, address how states may differently perceive what they're trying to accomplish. Um, But they're a mix of red and blue states. One of the laws is in California, and it was was an age-appropriate design code. Another law was in Arkansas, and those are two very different uh, kind of backgrounds that these policies are coming from. 
I do think, though, we should also take a step back and think about, well, if there are these concerns, are there a better way to address them? And one of those ways is the idea of education rather than regulation. The idea of empowering parents to use those tools that, as Chris mentioned, have been around since pretty early on the internet and have only evolved with that, but also of considering how we can use education in some of our existing, for example, computer literacy courses or things that may already be in the curriculum to really help young people feel empowered to have a positive experience online or to know what to do if they do have a negative experience. Yeah, and I I, want to come back to that because I know, Jennifer, you work a lot on uh, what is the research that we should be doing? Chris, I, 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 you want to respond to that? I think, you know, let's let's kind of tease out this state conversation. We wrote a blog at Brookings around a lot of the state uh, actions. And Jennifer, to your point, in our blog, we wrote about like, some of them don't even know how to identify which social media properties or properties to actually even focus on. Uh, so Chris, let's go to you. <laughs> no, I, I just want, I wanted to underscore what Jennifer just said, because it's absolutely true. Do we really know the problem that we're trying to tackle? Are we putting the cart before the horse in trying to tackle these issues? Because we truly don't understand how it's going to impact. And going back to the fact of where does the responsibility lie? And it really lies with the parents. At what point did we get to here where we are allowing or having the government really push and play the role of creating this legislation that puts the responsibility on the platforms, completely absolving the parent of their responsibility, their duty to continue to educate themselves and be knowledgeable about the digital world around them so that they can best prepare their youth, their child uh, for the world, for this digital world. I feel like some of these laws go so far Uh, in trying to regulate uh, while, again, completely absolving the parent of their responsibility as a parent. And I most certainly, as a parent, don't want that and would never want to hold back my child because of a regulation put in place uh, and, and really stunt their ability to grow in a digital space all the way up into adulthood where then they're playing catch up to catch up with the rest of the world or those in a particular industry or newer technologies. And I really think that what we're going to see if these laws pass is we're going to see youth who haven't had access, who have been held back in certain areas. And I think that creates a lot of problems for not only the United States, but I think different, uh, uh, more strict countries around the world. And we've seen that play out across history. You know, I think you're talking about the state. Um, I kind of alluded to it earlier in the fact that having a state-based approach really isn't helpful, especially the way that data and uh, online spaces just do not understand borders in the same way that we physically see on a map. Online spaces, uh, again, circumvent those borders of the physical ones, and companies really can't effectively operate uh, under 50 different states, as well as how many, you know, hundreds of countries around the world. As we think about the LGBTQ community in particular, um, states are, some of these states are actively putting laws in place that are uh, 
that are silencing and quieting LGBTQ expression um, and, and, and completely hurting the LGBTQ community. And so we're seeing attorney generals like Ken Paxton are vocal in the fact that they think they have a moral obligation to prevent access to LGBTQ content and medical care. And in turn, they use that and use some of that language when discussing children's privacy, when in fact the research around health and the health benefits of a child having access to LGBTQ content, if that's what they need, uh, and LGBTQ healthcare, um, it, the success rate of, of their life, the success rate of them being able to live a healthy, normal life is much higher compared to if you restrict it. We've seen way too many years of uh, our community being harmed, uh, especially our transgender community um, or those, those communities that don't identify within a binary. Um, and we're, we're continuing to see major issues here. And this is a huge issue for us when it comes to state-based approach and the way that ties in to digital spaces. I have a lot more to say about state-based, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, but look, I want to stay on this. And Jennifer, I want you to come in. And then if you have more to say on this, Chris, and then we'll go into like some of the particulars in some of the bills where they seem to be very interesting, right? In terms of getting the type of bipartisan support and even industry support. So just today, Mayor Adams came out declaring social media public health hazard. And he is a city. And like some of his state colleagues, I think they are all sort of, um, leveraging this public health crisis that came out through uh, the U.S. Department of Health, I believe it was last year, about social media in particular and why we probably need some of these laws. I mean, my question for you and Jennifer, I'll come to you, is like, I think states are on this momentum and I don't think they're going to pull back a little bit. So what do you think are going to be some of the challenges of the federal government and Congress sort of waiting to get into this game here? So as I mentioned, the... Good news for those who are concerned about the privacy or speech implications of these state laws is that we have not is that we have seen the courts pushing back when they are challenged. So we do see the First Amendment holding strong in court, as you know, Chris has has highlighted many of the concerns. I do think when it comes to this question of of social media being declared a, a public health crisis or or whatever, it's important to really take a step back and look at the whole picture. Yes, we should be concerned about the mental health crisis that teenagers and adults are having, and we should be having serious conversations about that. But we shouldn't rush to blame a technology for being the cause of that, particularly without strong data that can show that causal relationship, and particularly when there are so many counterexamples. To Chris's point, examples of young people who are are dealing with with issues whether it's it, whether it's lgbtq community whether it is a community where they're struggling with mental health and they're able to find support from people like them online or whether it's just that they feel isolated in their own community because they're the only person who looks like them or the only person into a particular video game or a particular book series being able to go online and connect with people and form those relationships has also been very important to to young people. And when I think back, you know, particularly to, it's hard to believe this is almost four years ago now, but 2020 and the COVID-19 pandemic, when so many young people had to do 
high school online or middle school online and had to find ways to continue to form those friendships and the communities that they had come to associate with in-person school. I think about, I think it's almost ironic that we told young people to go online and keep up with their friends and to form these friendships and do these activities. And now less than four years later, we're telling them, no, 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 that was all dangerous. Please stop, please stop, please stop. I know we yeah, keep I, giving him these mixed messages. I think my daughter would say I do the same thing at home. Go ahead, Chris. <laughs> I completely agree. I would think, you know, kind of underscoring something that we, when we first started LGBT tech and one of the questions that we received so often was, well, what's gay about technology or what's LGBTQ about technology? Jennifer, I think you underscored that point of there's nothing about the technology itself that is defining, you know, what is gay about technology or what what has to do with any particular group. The thing is, is it's about the user. So if social media is a public health crisis, then it has to do with the users inputting the information into the digital spaces. And if you're looking to tie it back to where the problem is, the problem is with the society in and of itself and dealing with the mental health crisis in society in and of itself, and to not be blaming a platform. The platform is providing the service to be able to actually share that outward and share how people are feeling. Um, And so I think it's really important, again, to make sure that we're focusing in on what is the problem. And quite frankly, as we see it, technology is not the problem. We have larger issues to deal with, like the mental health crisis, like providing services and care to those who need it most, especially those who are digitally disconnected or limited, those who may not have similar access or those who are seeking out information, but in states where they can't seek out information or help because it's been blocked from a legal pathway. Well, and that's the thing I think that both of you have been alluding to, that someone has to come in as an intermediary and that person has to be trusted. And oftentimes it is the parent uh, that is trusted. You know, one of the things that I struggle with is, you know, how do we even define the parent, right? And there is this uh, embedded understanding, particularly in COSA, around, you know, age verification and assurance and the fact that, you know, if you are 13 to 16, that there should be a parent to be able to validate and ensure that you are who you are and you're you're able to get online with that type of, um, you know, verification. Chris, your group has raised some concerns about that. So I hear you saying at the one pan, parents need to be involved, but you also have suggested that if you are a young person who has not necessarily come out when it comes to your sexual uh, preference, you know, that may cause concerns in terms of the children's privacy themselves, as well as, you know, challenges of just government age verification requirements for minors in general. So speak to me just a little bit about, you know, where you're standing on this age verification assurance piece. And I know, Jennifer, you and I've had conversations, I've heard you talk about this as well, um, in terms of what barriers that may set up for kids where there's not like a mainstream parent, you know, available to help with that. So Chris, I'll go to you and then Jennifer. Absolutely. You, you hit it right on the head. And yes, I'm saying parent and parents should be involved. That's in a home where the youth and the child is completely supported uh, through their journey of self-exploration, which includes sexual orientation and gender identity. So um, I want to make sure to underscore the fact that not every home looks the same. 
Um, I think it's really interesting when legislators and lawmakers talk about uh, a family as if it's always a mom and a dad and two and a half kids, when that's just not the reality of the United States or families around the world. It could be a a single mom. It could be a single dad. It could be two dads. It could be two moms. It could be there's all kinds of makeups of a different family. And so I think it's really important that these laws think about the adult person in someone's life that is helping them through this process. And sometimes youth are relying on another trusted adult. Maybe it's at school. Uh, I'm not saying that a teacher or administrator would necessarily be able to approve their, you know, profile on on X social media platform. But it, I think it's important to recognize that youth are seeking out help and information from adults that they trust around them. That may not necessarily be their parent, maybe an aunt, it may be an uncle, it may be a family friend that they truly trust that has, you know, raised them since they were a baby. I think it's really important to recognize and when we're instituting these laws, that privacy concerns are important. We want to protect children, absolutely. But we need to make sure the law is not so overt and so stringent that it is locking it down to a bio parent where that child is then hamstrung, not able to digitally connect, not able to find community, not able to gain access to resources, uh, continue to educate themselves on on these different platforms or just educate themselves because they find it fun. Um, and, and recognizing that they may not be out to a parent, in spe- specifically when we're talking about the LGBTQ community, that exploration starts internally first for everybody, whether you're gay, straight, by trans, it doesn't matter. It that self exploration and how you feel about yourself and how you're presenting yourself out to the world always starts internally, and it starts by gathering information. I'll talk about myself for a moment. I was coming up and growing up in the age of the internet um, when there was dial up and that screechy scratchy, you know, that I was trying to hide from my parents um, when I was logging on. But I was doing that self exploration on my own. I was thinking and, and looking up what it meant to have feelings for another guy um, and what that meant for me well before I had a conversation with friends, well before I had conversation with family members um, or even my parents. In fact, my parents were some of the last to know, uh, you know, when I was kind of coming out. Um, And then even from there, I had to provide a lot of education because I was still learning about the community in which I identified with. I didn't know a lot about the gay community. I didn't know a lot about the AIDS pandemic. I didn't know a lot about the history of Velvet Rage or what was happening within the government. I had to learn all that stuff. And the way that I learned that was on digital spaces, by talking to other people, by looking up information. And what we're seeing is these laws being so tight and so restrictive that we're actually blocking people's ability of free speech and freedom to information um, and their ability to educate themselves on so many ways. And I think that's where we come to age verification. It, it, it requires and compels platforms to confirm ages of users, typically through various, uh, you know, various verification methods. But what we've seen is really on the ID level. But millions of Americans lack these IDs, especially when it comes to marginalized communities. I'm not just talking about the LGBTQ community, but millions of Americans don't have access to some of the things that the government is requiring verifies the age. Um, And in fact, if we are looking more specifically at the LGBTQ community and the restrictions that have been placed around uh, that community and our community of the trans community 
across the country, 43% of trans Americans lack IDs that align with their gender identity. And if the bills are written in such a way, it would actually prevent them from having access to some of these online platforms. So we have a very hard line against age verification in the way that it's been brought up in many of the states that Jennifer alluded to earlier, um, because of the fact that they are so tight, so restrictive, and what we're actually going to see the result of that, I don't think has been really thought through. And the result of that is going to be limited access. It's going to be broadening the digital divide. It's going to be creating limited inf- access to limited information and creating a limit to free speech. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And Jennifer, I want I know you, it's interesting, uh, when we first met, you know, you brought up some really interesting points about the requirements that are being suggested. So, you know, I think Chris is bringing up something along the lines of, of a similarity when it comes to free speech and expression. But talk a little bit about, you know, what you think in terms of the age verification insurance model as it's integrated into some of these laws. Right. Particularly the age verification model, I think it's one of those things that for those who are concerned about their privacy, regardless of how old you are, this should give you pause. Because in its most extreme form, we are talking about having to upload your government issue ID, your birth certificate, your driver's license, your passport to a social media platform to prove your age in order to get an account or in order to get on that account. And from a privacy perspective, there are a lot of concerns of, well, what's happening with that data? Have you just created you know, this treasure trove of information for some hacker who wants to know, let's say, the address of every 16-year-old girl in a certain state to go after? And we can certainly see why that can create a privacy nightmare. But I also want to think about what that can mean for just even your, your average family, even those, you know, typical two-parent households. In some cases, we've seen not only age verification, but parental verification, which now means you would have to have not only the young person prove, you know, that they're whatever age that that it, they say they are and can get at least this kind of learner's permit account, but then you have to have the parent upload something that proves that they are that young person's parent and that they are okay with, and that they're also the age they say they are and and everything. You know, I had a a really good relationship with my parents, but I, I was talking to my mom and I'm like, if I was 16 and I came to you and said, not only am I going to upload my new driver's license to this, I need you and my dad to go upload your driver's license to this. Even in a lot of households, that's going to be a, a huge barrier to allowing young people to use these services that can be hugely beneficial to them and can allow them to connect with their peers for all the reasons that we talk about. But then it also gives that pause as well of what does this mean for households that don't model that to parents that are the, the biological parents, as Chris mentioned, Think about, you know, someone who's remarried and they're, they have a very positive relationship with their step-parent. Can the step-parent consent to the young person getting on, online? Are we going to have to have divorce decrees that declare who is the guardian for social media purposes for a, a young person? What about a young person who's in foster care, let alone a young person who's dealing with abuse, and that's the reason they want to get online, is to try and find very important help or to try and find help for a parent who may be struggling with addiction or something like that. These are all scenarios that are are very real in the U.S. that we could see 
age verification and particularly some of the parental verification requirements getting in the way of? You know, I think this is so interesting, you know, because at the end of the day, we all want to be good stewards of any child that's under our care or village, as you know, many communities talk about. But I I never really thought about these implications. It almost reminds me of voting, right? Where there are certain barriers that exist for certain segments uh, of our society. But, you know, a lot of these bills, and and we're going to start wrapping up here, but like many of these bills, though, are pretty clear about bans on advertising to minors. And uh, we haven't talked about that yet. So uh, Jennifer, I want to come back to you. I mean, should there be some, you know, let's say we can't get BS age verification. We're still sort of struggling through the research and what problem we're trying to solve. Should we be addressing bans on children advertising on these platforms? Is that something that should be like one of the measures that should get overwhelming support? We have existing COPPA laws for under 13s where we've really identified, you know, a particular population as more vulnerable. Uh, When it comes to 13 to 16 year olds, I think we have to stop and think, what would this mean if we if we saw these kind of bans? One of the things is it would probably mean less free services that are available for that age group. That's one of the concerns with even the existing restrictions around the use for of data for under 13s is, are you going to see that you can't have an app that is free to the user because it's ad supported because of concerns about the additional requirements that might have to be made to identify the different ages of those users? And this isn't just talking about social media. It could even be something like a learning app, an app to learn a foreign language, for example, could be ad supported and get caught up in this in this kind of debate over targeted advertising. I think when we hear targeted advertising or targeted data use, we many of us often get the, ooh, that's creepy reaction right away. And instead, we need to take a step back and think about how much data has also provided that personalized experience that we really can enjoy, um, that provides something that is is perhaps even better at times in how it is able to identify what uh, what we're what we're looking for in the moment in a in a positive way as opposed to just showing us the random ad for for whatever is out there. So I think again when we're we we really have to consider all the trade-offs when it comes to this conversation, whether we're talking about 13 to 16 year olds or if we're talking about advertising more generally. And Chris, what's your thought on that in terms of banned advertising for children or I think with uh Jen is talking about like this tiered approach, which has been suggested uh, by industry that we sort of mature our way into the space so that we don't have what you were talking about, like these laps and people understanding the Internet. Exactly. And I think that's sure under a certain age. Absolutely. Do I want ads served, you know, to my youngest child who's three? Um, No, I don't. Um, I think there is a stair stepped approach here because. I, I also feel like on the, on the other side of the spectrum, having, uh, you know, no ads, no ad, you know, serving in any way, shape or form until they turn 18 uh, or 17, you know, that's also not helpful to the child because then the child's not also able to learn a true digital atmosphere and a true di- digital ecosphere to be able to make better decisions, understand what ads are, how they integrate into digital platforms. We need to make sure that we're providing a certain level of support to the youth 
through parent, you know, through parents or a guardian, um, and that they have a space to talk about these things while they're still in a in a home, um, and can can have those resources. Um, but I also think that we do need to make sure that we are protecting children's data in some way, shape, or form, and what information is being served to them. Um, this gets in a really gray area because, as we've had a lot of these conversations. It's a lot harder to go ahead and say what is allowed and what isn't allowed uh, as far as these ad spaces, um, you know, when it comes to information. If it's, oh, we're doing uh, research or this is a helpful, uh, this is a helpful app that is around education. What kind of education is it? You know, would the, you know, in our household, we're not necessarily religious, but we encourage our children to learn about religion in you know all religions so make sure that they have a clear understanding but we most certainly wouldn't want someone pushing religion on them and in some way shape or form so there's a lot of gray areas in here that i think we need to work through i'm not saying that i have the answer here and it is most certainly something i'm thinking about consistently um but it's i think we have a long ways to go and i don't have a clear silver no you know it it's okay, right? Because I think industry is not even clear about this, right? Um, I want to pivot to industry, you know, because we haven't really talked about them. I mean, to your point, Chris, it's like as a person who is thinking about this as a policymaker, as a researcher like Jen and myself, like, you know, there are some things that could be very helpful in managing some of the risks that we're trying to balance when it comes to children. And industry has responded to a certain extent without naming names where we've seen different proposals come from them, you know, uh, despite some of them being hit with lots of lawsuits. I think there's been this common suggestion that they need to do something right. And potentially it's privacy by design. Potentially it's sort of um, contributing to the conversations of some more recent legislation when it comes to pornography or other high risk scenarios that young people are engaged in. And I think there perhaps, and, and you all saw the federal trade commission's rule uh, making a proposal that came out in terms of just banning <laughs> advertising and, you know, being putting stricter guidelines, you know, uh, for companies, for children at 13. My question is, is industry doing enough or should we be sort of looking at a more self-regulatory model at this point? Um, and, and then we'll wrap up. I promise. I promise. But I, I just want to hear your opinions. Like, should this be on the parent or should it also be on industry to pick up some of the ball on this? Jennifer, what do you think? I think going back to what we heard earlier on with Chris talking about the the original kind of challenges of the question of parental controls on the internet, even goodness, 20, 30 years ago now, it's hard to believe those cases are, are that old. Right, right. right. <laughs> the, the, the response was the market is responding. We're seeing these parental controls and they're providing opportunities for parents to make those choices. I think there's also a role for civil society groups, think tanks, and kind of parental support groups to provide this information as as well so that, you know, parents know how to have what are at times difficult conversations with their kids about, hey, I think that I'm going, if you're going to get on social media, that I'm going to turn on this feature and I'm going to know everything you do. And in some households, that may be the right choice. In other households, the conversation may be something more like, hey, you just got on social media, things happen. If something happens, come talk to me. 
different households are going to have different needs. And the advantage of the parental control approach is that it allows those households to find the solution for their needs. What we're seeing is a lot of industry at different levels, whether it's the device level or the app level, or even you know add-ons for browsers that are completely separate from the apps themselves, are providing a wide range of options for parents to to have the different solutions that work for them. I think we're seeing a lot more information about what is available for parents, but also what's available for all users. Because there are times where these features are not just about young people. They may be useful for all of us in order to know, you know, hey, how much time did I spend on this particular app this week? Or, hey, I want to decide whether or not I give this app my location data. Or maybe I want to turn on this feature actually for an older relative who is on an account so that I, I make sure I'm aware of what of how much they're buying in a particular gaming app that they, they may enjoy. So, uh, yeah, go ahead, Chris, because I was going to say, based on what Jen said, I mean, are we should we be leaning towards some consensus among industry on certain thresholds, age? And, you know, from what you've been talking about, I like how Jen has framed it. Maybe it's like just having industry be sensitive to this portfolio of stuff that can help in raising uh, media literacy. And we've most certainly seen this. I agree with a lot of Jennifer's points in the fact that we have seen industry itself look at the data or if they are dealing with particular issues on their platforms, they're typically the first line of defense of seeing that and understanding it. And we are seeing them be proactive in involving, you know, making sure one, that it complies with a a legal framework, two, that they are involving civil society uh, in these conversations. They are looking deeply at research uh, and bringing uh, bringing the experts in to make sure that they are fully informed and then building the tools out to allow parents or a guardian to help guide their child um, or as Jennifer alluded to an older adult or anybody who's in need of extra assistance in a digital world, they're creating the tools to help them do that. And we've seen a very proactive approach. You see a lot of the negative headlines of, you know, this platform didn't do enough and they didn't catch it. Um, But the thing is that we are seeing a lot of that. And quite frankly, LGBT tech itself is involved in a lot of those conversations. We are one of the civil society groups that is sitting around the table saying, hey, have you thought about um, the impact of this on LGBTQ individuals who don't have a supportive home um, or who do have a supportive home or are looking for particular resources? How are they going to gain access to that? Um, As well as the civil society organizations or the nonprofits that are working in a particular area to help community members have specific programs and information and access for them. And so you kind of going back to the leading back to the ad space, you know, ads are not just products and materials and buy this and ads are also, you know, are you looking for information on digital, uh, digital empowerment and digital learning um, there can be ads around that. There can be ads around gaining extra knowledge uh, for a particular community or a particular subset of the population or geographically uh, where someone may be more disconnected, but they're getting online or maybe uh, more services coming to the area so they have more access to digital spaces. Those resources are also really important. Um, and so I do think it is a mixture of, sure, making sure that we have the right legislative 
laws in place um, and making sure that we're not making it so complicated that, you know, if you drive two miles, all of a sudden your entire set of laws around that digital space change. Uh, it needs to be set at a much broader space, broader area than that, like federally. Um, but then also that we're not blocking the resources that could be really helpful for somebody to be the best digital citizen that they can be in protecting themselves and protecting their family and protecting their community and being a, a resource to those who otherwise uh, would really need it. No, this has been great. Listen, I could talk to you guys for a long time, but I'm not because I'm going to bring you back and we're going to like actually do a 2.0 because there are other questions I wanted to ask, particularly as we've been bringing up like other platforms uh, that may be impacted. Because I think the thing that you're really elevating in this conversation is, you know, social media is one thing, but there are other online platforms that could be affected by any type of legislative action. And we need to pay attention to that. So listen, in the spirit of just wrapping this conversation up, Super Bowl Sunday is coming up. There's going to be winners and there are going to be losers. Uh, I'm going to just be really interesting. Yes, no. Children's privacy, federal data privacy. Chris, yes or no? <laughs> Where are you waging? What's going to come first? <laughs> Children's <sighs> privacy. You got to just say one or the other. Yes or no. Children's privacy before federal privacy. Yes or no. Given the current landscape. I think children's privacy is going to... Oh, man, that's not a good way to wage a Super Bowl bet. It's either going to be one (laughs) team or the other. Jennifer, children's privacy before national data privacy. (laughs) I think to to Chris's point, what we've seen is while many of us have been pointing out that a federal privacy framework would resolve so many of the questions we have, whether in various tech policy debates that the current appetite and the current focus is on these more narrow issues. So whether it's children's privacy or another kind of more specific area of privacy, that seems to be where the conversation at a policy level is going, which is to the, we could do a whole nother podcast. We're going to come back and talk about this. About about all the the different privacy uh, (laughs) frameworks and and burdens that those can put and the different trade-offs involved and everything. So I'll try and try and leave it at that. Yeah. I'm I'm coming back to you all, but I, I think we might have the children's privacy or data privacy. Listen, Thank you both for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your participation. This conversation was richer than I even imagined. Um, so thank you for coming on. Listen, folks, this concludes our Tech Tame podcast. I want to thank Jennifer and Chris for sharing their thoughts with us about the future of online children's privacy. As you've noticed, we got a lot more conversating to do here. And I want to thank you all for logging onto a podcast that takes complex tech policy issues from bits to bytes for everyone to understand. Please continue to listen, subscribe, log in, and tell others about it if you like what you're hearing. Thank you so much, you two. And uh, we'll be back for part two. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings. Thank you.